Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? Where we guarantee no succession finale spoilers. We are saving them all for a special one-off mini-cast, which will be with you very soon, plastered with warnings, so don't listen to it unless you've seen the show. But in the meantime, the main programme. This time, the Cabinet Office is locked in a battle with the COVID inquiry over Boris Johnson's unredacted WhatsApp messages, diaries and notebooks, which are totally private and confidential, and you should be ashamed of yourself for wanting to look at them. Should ministers expect a bit of privacy? Is COVID rising from the dead? And who will rid the Conservatives of this troublesome former Prime Minister? Plus, where in the world is Jeremy Hunt? He was brought in as a safe pair of hands, but inflation is stubbornly refusing to fall as planned. Interest rates are still rising and voters and Tory backbenchers are restive. Can the government eke out the rest of its term on small boats and woke bashing when in fact it's the economy, Sunak? And of course, we'll have the escape routes that take our minds off the outfall from Britain's political sewage pipes. Let's meet today's panel. Dr. Seth Tavo is the author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. He's the best dressed chap on the Ogwin team. And he's appearing at the Stoke Newington Literary Festival this weekend to talk clubs with friend of the podcast, Pete Brown. Hello, Seth. Hello, hello. So over the weekend, we saw drone attacks in Moscow in the Rubliovka suburb, which is where... Putin has his official residence. Buildings were damaged. It's quite an impressive feat by Ukraine if Ukraine has done it. But should we worry about it escalating the conflict? There hasn't been a single stage of this conflict where Russia hasn't threatened to escalate and Mm. hasn't explicitly threatened to use nuclear weapons. It's noticeable that they haven't. Um, It's one of these... uh, promises or indeed threats that gets more diminished every time they make it. Uh, And it's especially tricky for this point you made about if indeed Ukraine has done it. There is no doubt Ukraine has been carrying out some strikes deep within Russian territory. I mean, they've gone as far as uh, munition dumps in Siberia. They can certainly strike upon Moscow. Whether this individual attack or that individual attack is the, the thing that Russia wants to use as the trigger point, Rather yeah, more this is a president who it's pretty widely accepted now has caused bomb attacks in Moscow, which killed hundreds of people as pretext for his own political actions. So it's it's not a slam dunk that it was the Ukrainians at all. Yeah, and I, I tend to get doubtful instinctively when people mention the phrase false flag attack, but um, Russia does actually rather specialise <laughs> in false flag attacks. So it's, it's not a clear-cut thing here. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper. He's a housing specialist and she's preparing for a Britprop summer of Pulp, Blair and possibly the Boo Radley's Machiavelli <laughs> as well. Hello, Hannah. Hi there. So you're a big proponent of building more houses. What do you make of Labour's plans to force landowners to sell the land at a fraction of market rate? Well, I'm sad to say that this is firmly in the camp of policies that sound great, but don't really do very much. Um yeah, land is a big part of the problem. Anything that releases land and makes it more affordable and more accessible for development, yes, a good thing. But compulsory purchase orders and local authority development is only a small part of the issue. And there's also two other problems I think are really important here. It doesn't address land banking. So developers hold on to huge amounts of land and they do that because they want to wait until it's you know financially viable to build. Um, house prices are dropping materials costs are rising because of Brexit, it's not affordable to build housing right now. So that it's not going to address the fact that the developers are already sitting on loads of land. The other thing is, although building's really important, and as you said, I'm obsessed with the fact that we should build more houses, it's actually only a fraction of the problem with the housing system. And 
Labour isn't saying very much yet about all the other issues, you know, private rent, what they're going to do about private landlords uh, exploiting the system where they do, what they're going to do about the fact that the local housing allowance means that benefits doesn't really cover the cost of private rent. I mean, there's so many issues. So, you know, yes, pleased to hear this, but it's a little bit of whitewashing of the bigger issue at the moment. And we'll definitely be coming back to this one because it's going to be one of the huge issues that runs up to the election all the way. Completing the panel, Alex Andreu is a writer, cook, actor, columnist and the owner of more opera albums than I've got old Acid House records. Hello, Alex. <laughs> yeah, like it's a contest. <laughs> no, no, but it is a contest. It totally is. I've got Opera House, so a bit of a crossover there. So listen, Alex, it was a grim weekend for the war on populism. Erdogan won another term as president of Turkey on the cursed ratio of 52% to 48% in the runoff election. I know. Well, right? what, what does it mean? And when will, we, when will we ever be rid of 52-48? Um, I mean, it means continuing instability for that area, since Erdogan has been quite a difficult NATO member. Um, but hopefully no additional instability in the sense that the other person was a completely unknown quantity, so along the lines of the Sun Tzu, Kylie Minogue, um, better the devil you know, Maxim. Uh, I mean, it means an intensification of Erdogan's crackdown on civil liberties, I think, because strong men like him, they don't tend to go, phew, that was close, but I can chill now. Um, But it also means, I think, an important lesson for progressives everywhere, including here. The notion that traditional media no longer matters, that it has somehow been supplanted by social media, I think is a bedtime story that we tell ourselves. Both Erdogan and Mitsotakis in Greece actually overcame incredible odds uh, and a huge current against them by devoting their entire energy to controlling the narrative with both carrot and stick on TV news and the national press. It matters. Labour, take heed. Before we get started, a little note for your diary. Regular panellist and fan favourite Naomi Smith will be answering your questions live on Zoom on the next Podcaster's Question Time, exclusive to our Patreon backers. It's happening on this coming Thursday, the 1st of June, and Naomi will answer questions on a wide variety of topics from fixing our post-Brexit trade mess to exciting recipe ideas for tofu to whatever you like. Search Patreon Oh God What Now, sign up to backers for as little as £3 a month, and you can join us. We'll see you there on the night. As we record, Lady Hallett's COVID-19 inquiry has just extended the deadline for the Cabinet Office to hand over Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages, diaries and notes. The Cabinet Office is now saying it doesn't even have the documents, which raises the question of how they can know that the messages are unambiguously irrelevant, as they say, (laughs) if they don't even have them in order to read them. Would handing them over set a bad precedent for ministers? And more importantly, will our poor government ever be rid of Boris Johnson? Seth, why would you say something is irrelevant when it sounds like you don't actually have it in your hand? Or do they have it and they're not telling us the truth? Well, they can't know. But probably the best precedent for this actually is in the United States. And that's with the Nixon tapes during the Watergate scandal. Um, Remember that for all of the Nixon tapes to actually emerge and be fully transcribed and released to the public... 
Yeah. That took 40 years of legal action, and that included a U.S. Congress that actually passed the law that made it a criminal offence to destroy evidence whilst it, this sort of thing was still pending. This is actually what Trump has landed in his yeah. trouble with over presidential records. But in the U.K., we don't have quite the same culture about this. Um, it's debatable as to whether Johnson could just destroy the WhatsApp messages, for instance. But uh, we've already seen government ministers say, oh, I accidentally deleted my WhatsApp history, and no one's been able to do anything about that. We've also seen WhatsApp messages get thrown in the North Sea, haven't we? Yeah. This does happen. <laughs> yeah. um, and, we, uh, you know, I, I thought that one aspect of WhatsApp was supposed to be the kind of uh, the security and the deniability. But then we have effectively outsourced a large part of government mm. messaging to a privately owned channel yep. whose uh, security is, shall we say, not attested to GCHQ standards. No, and you do actually need within government to have candid conversations. And this used to happen face to face all the time. The fact that we decided to put this in a written permanent form and then stow it away somewhere. The only flaw in all of those security measures is if you happen to be a complete idiot like Matt Hancock and just hand them all over to Isabel Oakshot. <laughs> yeah, there needs to be a kind of Oakshot thing, doesn't it? It's like just like put on the phone to stick it, do not give to Isabel Oakshot. Um, do you think that there are things, you know, I mean, the reluctance to hand it over and the fact that Johnson is sort of stamping his feet so much about it, even though it's not really his choice, mm. indicates that there are things in here that will be very embarrassing. Of course there are things that are embarrassing and there's lots of stuff to hide. Remember that we have had in response to very specific individual questions tiny bits of Johnson's WhatsApp messages have emerged, not least um, from Dominic Cummings leaking mm. some of these. And those are just some of the highlights. Um, there are bound to be more. It's being characterised as a straightforward cover-up, but do you think the Cabinet Office, you may mention it just then, does have a point about preserving confidentiality for ministers? Does, does it produce, you know, if, if uh, at the back of your mind is the thought that eventually this stuff is going to be put in front of an inquiry, does it produce a damaging self-censorship? Yeah, I mean, bear in mind the degree to which ministers are constantly having to be on message, <clears throat> supporting the official government line the whole time. And there is genuinely, if you're in government, a very rare space where you need to be able to say, could we do the policy in this way? Um, and to be completely wrong, to be completely off message. And I can see why they might argue that you would need to be able to do that in private. The problem is, if you come up one day and say, let's slaughter half the population, that might be in the public interest for that to actually, uh, you know, emerge. It would certainly interest the public. Um, Hannah, over the weekend, we heard that the inquiry was preparing to take legal action against the Cabinet Office in order to mm. obtain stuff. That looks like pretty unprecedented to me. Yeah, there have been some legal challenges or attempts at mm. in the past. Um, the publication of classified medical documents during the Hutton inquiry, which was over the death of David Kelly, you remember the WMD yeah. expert who died by suicide after being caught up in the Iraq war controversy. Um, there was some attempt to release his medical documents by a legal uh, action. Uh, and actually, more recently, the police directly blocked uh, or advised the blocking, which went ahead, um, of the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea from releasing documents to the Grenfell Inquiry because it could potentially have collapsed future criminal proceedings in, in that. It would be good, actually, I think, if there was a legal challenge here because it would set some kind of precedent. I think we do need some precedent set on, on, on our rights to information and when, when you have to come forward. And obviously those two cases I just cited are very different from this one, but... Um, but these inquiries do need teeth to be effective and worthwhile. So if there was some kind of precedent set about when you can take legal action, that would be good. What do we know so far about the COVID inquiry and, and Lady Hallett? So we're expecting a, a kind of chill-cut job where it's vastly detailed, takes a very long time and appears long after the government in question has gone. I think we probably deserve the kind of detailed inquiry that you're talking about there. Um, what comes out of it? 
it, it is really interesting. We there are lots of reasons to be very forgiving about the earliest errors that government might have made in the pandemic. But we need to pick through all of the detail and we need this inquiry to do that, to understand what was unforced error and mm. what that any government would have faced and what was incompetence, refusing to follow advice, corruption, cronyism and so on. So yeah, the detail that you're talking about there, I, pages and pages and pages, I think we need that. I thought Lord Falconer made a very good point uh, today. He was saying that uh, Lady Hallett is not out with Whitehall. Um, She was appointed by the government to do this job. And in doing that, the government has outsourced essentially the judgment of what should remain confidential and what is in the public interest. Um, So to act as a further choke on what they hand over to her. No, that that is precisely her job, to look at everything and decide what is private, what is irrelevant, and what is germane to the job that they asked her to do. I'm surprised that what that snappy little line hasn't come out more clearly in this in the reams and reams of coverage of this. Is if that's a, if that's a position, it would seem to clean up an awful lot. <laughs> um Hannah, Johnson praised Hallett to the skies when he appointed her. Uh, and uh, now she's accusing the Cabinet Office of potentially committing a criminal offence. Yes. And not providing these materials. Well, they I, fall out quickly, don't they, these people? <laughs> they do, but I think we can be reassured by that, that she's a really great choice. Now, this is, you know, we're hearing, she's showing her strength. She's got a long, distinguished career in the law. Um, you know, Boris might not feel it from what he's hearing, but she's being fair and balanced. She's representing us, the public, in this, not not him, not the government, not the former um, cabinet. So good to hear her being strong about this. She's doing such a good job, she's going to end up Chief of Staff of the Labour Party at this race. <laughs> exactly. Alex, um, you were looking today at Rishi Sunak's attempt to deal with this issue in a pooled interview, which looked comically bad. He simply stammered on about tens of thousands of documents and a spirit of candour. Uh, how do you think the <laughs> government's basically had it? He basically had four talking points that he had memorised and kept yeah. repeating them in different orders for about two minutes. Remember Action Man when you could pull that thing on his yes. throat and he would say, yes. look yes. out, here comes Jerry, or hit the deck chaps. That Just was in, exactly in it. That was exactly yes. it. And and actually, I have seen several edits going around, all of which do him enormous favours. You need to see <laughs> the full minute and a half of him just, you know, needing someone to unplug him and plug him back in <laughs> in, case, in case he stops glitching. He's awful. Oh. And I cannot wait for the... For the general election, actually, I am increasingly getting the sense that Sunak will crash and burn really, really badly. I was older viewers may remember um, uh, the day to day and the bit where their robotic business correspondent, Calatherly Sisters, starts to malfunction. And she just says, Chris, up, down, three, four, Chris. <laughs> and then they have to cut away from her very sharply. Um, well, I mean, stepping away from poor old uh, Sunak, what do you make of the government's handling of this uh, this this latest micro crisis? Yeah, I don't think you can step away from Sunak actually, because I think what's going on is that uh, there is a fear, a palpable fear, that by releasing all of them, loads of people who are still in government will will be implicated. You know, Sunak was chancellor at the time, Gove was around, Shaps was around, senior, senior people 
in the government at the moment. And so I think in, in a weird way, Johnson is the dead cat here. Um, and actually the reticence has to do with how many other people might be implicated if these exchanges um, come out. It's not a stretch to imagine that eats out to help out might pop up to the front of the uh, yes. Again, is it? Because, yes, like, I mean, yeah. I mean, that that is a, a very good example. We've already seen glimpses of that from just seeing Hancock's texts. Um, and so, I mean, the whole thing is, is really very strange because there's a private-public tension here, right? They they claim these things are private and they treat them like private property. Um, when Hancock handed over all his WhatsApps to Isabel Oakeshott, he was treating them as private property, as as though they are his to do with whatever he wants. But actually, if they contain negotiations of government contracts and things like that, they are also a public record. And there's no getting away from that. You can't have it both ways. You can't use these electronic means to obfuscate the need to keep a record of what you're doing as a fucking minister. It's private. I, I feel sorry for because they're going to have to retire their fake WhatsApp page. Aren't yes. It's not going to be it's not going to be funny as the real thing. Uh, Alex, this calls, all comes on the heels of I think probably your favourite moment of the year so far when the cabinet uh, office sent the police evidence of Johnson hosting <laughs> as yet unrevealed gatherings at Chequers during COVID from the evidence that they were looking at. And Johnson went absolutely spare about it. The Guardian says it sent him into a mood of bleak despair. So it's not all bad. Yes, this no. A- I, I think his. I think this is the death knell of, of his career, probably. But but my favourite moment in that um, section of the of this affair, by the way, was Rachel Johnson stepping up to defend him by saying, "Well, there were no breaches of the rules whenever I went to checkers." <laughs> And it's like, oh, mate. That's like what? Yogi Berra levels of... <laughs> don't like, tell him, punk. Oh, yeah, don't mate. Tell, exactly, yeah. Be it's quiet. Like, nobody goes there anymore. It's too popular. Yeah. Uh, so, Seth, I mean, uh, uh, Alex has rather preempted my question to you. Do you think this is doing for Johnson's increasingly absurd ideas of a comeback? Well, the, that was something that only ever really appealed to a core of Johnson true believers. Mm. And... They're the kind of people who remind me of of Steve Colbert's comment on George W. Bush. You know, this is somebody who believed the same thing on Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened on Tuesday, (laughs) and no evidence is going to shake them. But then there's the rest of the Tory party, and um, they can see that this is not edifying. Yeah. Hannah, there's a great quote in The Guardian from the uh, our old friend, a senior Tory. I love that guy, or maybe it's a woman, uh, saying, if it remains an MP, he stays more in the limelight. The COVID inquiry will go on for years with him at the centre of it all. Now, this sounds like a bad thing to most normal people, but Boris Johnson just likes being at the centre of it all, doesn't he? Yeah, he's an enigma for that. He just seems to crave attention, whatever the source. And mm. um, he's almost like a human meme of that phrase all publicity is good publicity (laughs) he just kind of walks around absorbing it Um, I do think if he stands in Uxbridge he's very likely to lose his seat Mm. but Mm. that won't make him go away because he's this sort of restless malcontent who who, who won't just go off and take his 200 grand a year for a column which incidentally as a columnist if anyone wants to uh, pay me 200,000 a year to write a column I will just do nothing else you could make up stuff about bananas and (laughs) condoms and stuff exactly very happily for that amount of money Um, it is a problem for Sunak though 
there's some interesting polling out um, this week for, uh, by Onward, this kind of centre-right or right, actually mid mid isn't this Sebastian Payne's office? Yes. Yeah, Sebastian Payne, new Conservative candidate, but do continue. Uh, his organisation has looked at the popularity of uh, the Tories among millennials specifically, mm. and they've found that Sunak rates much higher than the party in general for millennials, not so for the rest of the demographic. So mm. if you're older, you're, you, you're pretty much the same. Your approval rating for Sunak is about your same view of the party. But if you're a millennial, you're much more likely to approve of Sunak but disprove of conservatism. So that is a huge issue if they start... I mean, that they're, they're struggling immensely anyway. They're going to lose the next election. But if they also can't get the one guy who's speaking to the younger demographic to, to you know, past the, the Boris problem, then... Yeah, massive issue. And that, of... can, that can be the kiss of death, actually, in politics all the time, in the same way that every time Jeremy Corbyn was derided as being electoral poison, he would say, but he does so well among young people. And it's, yeah. yes, but look at the rest of the electorate. Mm. Um, I mean, the point Alex made was quite an important one about being seen to be a bit robotic and a bit weird, because if you look at the Conservatives' very successful um, campaign strategy in 2015, which was to totally destroy Ed Miliband, it latched onto a first impression, which was he was a bit weird, yeah. and there were a the number of factors. And all there of was that. a bit of anti-Semitism thrown in there as well, but a big part of it actually was if you remember that interview where he says the same answer, the strikes are wrong, just 15 yeah. different ways. Early first impressions like that are really quite compelling. And if I was a Labour spin doctor right now, that's what I'd be latching on to. The idea that Rishi Sunak does well in a geeky kind of way that gets on well with young millennials, but he's a bit strange. I can see that blowing back in a catastrophic way when Sunak's nerdcore appeal starts to sweep <laughs> the youngsters. And they're all like, it's like voting for Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. I oh, like him. no, no. When Jeremy Hunt was appointed Chancellor in the dying days of Mad Liz Truss's reign of error, he was supposed to be a dependable, safe pair of hands. We even called him the Prime Chancellor on this podcast. But Hunt's initially good economic news is turning bad for the Conservatives, inflation is falling, but not nearly as fast as the markets expected, core inflation on food and fuel is still raging, and interest rates are on course for 5.5%, their highest since July 2007. Meanwhile, all Conservative energy seems to be going into a war on woke that nobody wants and the inevitable small boats. If the Conservatives can't win on economic competency, what can they win on? Hannah, Jeremy Hunt says he's willing to accept a recession in order to bring down inflation. Is the country willing to accept a recession to bring down inflation? This is such a daft way of phrasing things. The country doesn't care. People, ordinary folks, do not care about the technical answer to the question, are we in a recession? They really only care about how they feel, and they feel like they're in the depth of a deep recession. Um, the cost of living, stalling wage growth, all of that, they feel awful. So, no, you know, if he yeah. thinks they're going to sit back and go, hmm, let me think about this carefully. How do I feel about the balance between recession and inflation? You know, it's just not what they're, they're, they feel like. So, you know, they, they may have no choice. This is the wrong way to phrase it. But, yeah. but was it the right way to answer it? I suppose because when your audience, you're, you're trying. Your job is captain, calm the markets and make them think that you've got a degree <laughs> yeah. of confidence on the go there. Uh, possibly, but it's so out of touch. It's it's going to make people rage and feel like you do not understand what it is. The, the, the distance thing again, the, the yeah. them and us factor. It's going to make people feel like he doesn't understand what the, the economy feels like to them. So, 
Uh, no, it's not willing to accept one. Is yeah, the, is I mean, he was actually asking quite a technical question about interest rates and whether he'd back further rises. Uh, annual inflation in April was higher than expected. It was 8.7%. And that sort of points towards yeah. a, 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 another increase. Is this opening a schism in the Tory party then between the people who want growth and tax cuts and, you know, the basic continuity list trust and those who want to fight inflation, you know, yeah, continuity so we're, Thatcher? We're seeing a bit of that with the, the debate about Sunak and his divisive supermarket price capping mm. thing. It's it's this kind of, should you interfere with the market? How far you should be interfering? There are always going to be the, the IDSs and the John Redwoods who say, no, we focus on growth and tax cuts and the rest sorts itself out. Um, but then trust showed us what happens when you do that. <laughs> well, the, the mad thing about continuity trustism is it's allowed a whole lot of people who were in charge for a long period of time to suddenly redefine themselves as the resistance, yeah, as the underdogs. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Um, and where is Hunt? You raised that question right mm. at the beginning of the show. He's not leading this argument. He's letting Sunak take the flack for this price capping thing, which is part of the whole argument that he's supposed to should be leading. Um, it makes me wonder, is he sitting back and preparing his leadership bid? Yeah. Um, Seth, the, 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 the price capping that um, Han just mentioned, This, I'm ancient enough to remember this in mm. the 70s. Prices and incomes policy, it sounds like something from the, well, it is something from the distant past. <laughs> from a carry-on film. From a carry-on <laughs> film, yeah. Well, I can, I can vaguely remember stickers on shops saying, price check, government price check. And mm. it didn't work at all. The forces of inflation and the forces of uh, industrial unrest just swept it away. Yeah. But how... How, you know, re- retailers reacted really badly to it as well, to the prospect of doing it now. The British Retail Consortium said it would not make a jot of difference to prices. How does a supposedly Thatcherite Prime Minister, Robot Rishi, end up introducing this kind of uh, throwback to the era of um, Flares and the Bay City Rollers and David, and, you know, David Bowie? It's a bit of a cliche to say that to understand the Tories, you have to understand Thatcher. But I think actually to understand Thatcher, you have to understand... Ted Heath and the Toryism that came before it. Ted Heath came to power in 1970 on a manifesto that was probably more Thatcherite than Thatcher. You know, no more subsidies, cutting the size of the state, all these sorts of things. They were right there front and centre. He did that. The economy crashed within a year, a year and a half of his coming to power. And Ted Heath became synonymous with the phrase U-turn. I mean, it really popularised because the government then said, well, what can we do? We've been seen to completely mess up. You know, instead of Liz Truss's 40-odd days, it was a year and a half, but it became a case of they turned into one of the most interventionist governments in the history of Britain. And that was because they were thinking, well, um, let's stop listening to the ideologues. Let's listen to the civil servants who are coming up with these technocratic, non-political solutions. Um, and right now, you have a government that has tried the highly ideological solutions with this trust, and they're sort of thinking, well, what, what else is left? But has it really been tried properly, Seth? It's never really been tried properly. <laughs> For years, inflation was regarded as a problem of the past, really. Um, but now prices are rising faster than they have in 45 years. Mm. Do you think we're, we're relearning that terror of inflation that basically was the core belief of Thatcherism? Yeah, because our memories work along the lines of human lifespan. And one of the depressing realities I come to grips with as a historian all the time, and people say, oh, you've got this really unusual knowledge. No, I just look at more than 20 years ago. Depressingly, 20 years ago seems quite recent to me. Yeah. It's like, 20 years ago, the sugar babes were knocking around 20 years ago. It's like feels like yesterday. The thing to remember, though, is that the peel of Thatcher at that time wasn't conservatism as a political solution to the issue, well, not solely, but it was like the promise for some change. Yeah. So people are not plugged into the, that level of debate 
and um you know they they they're thinking about what can we do about this we can have a change so it's labor that are set to benefit mm. from from that sort of back to the future situation we're in and there is this mythology because heath wobbles between 71 and 72 and the thatcher contrast is the country was in massive recession. Um, it was already a case of the economy having gone belly up. But because it had started that way, firstly, they were able to say, oh, it's, it's just something we inherited from Labour. And secondly... Oh, have we heard that before? <laughs> well, yeah, quite. But this goes on for then three or four years of the government just saying, we don't care. We don't care about high unemployment. It's, it's not our problem. Talk about a day late and a quid short. Um, if you want to intervene on prices in a meaningful way to affect inflation... Fucking energy prices at the wholesale levels was the point at which to intervene. That would have made a huge... It did in France. It made a massive difference to inflation, right? That is the point at which to intervene. Instead of saying, we will let the prices go rampant, and in K, instead pay the energy companies, you know, the difference between what you, what, what you can't afford and the price, the price of energy. That is what caused part of the rampant inflation we're experiencing now. So to say now I will cap the price of milk at a pound, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a, it's a sort of micro-interjection having completely messed it up. What sort of a chancellor do you think Hunter's been so far, Alex, when, when he's visible? Um, I mean, it's very difficult to separate Hunt's policies from his persona, which is sort of very reassuring, very dull. Um, but, but actually, you know, he seems safe only compared to the idiocy that preceded him, I think, which is not a high bar, let's face it. Um, I actually find him worryingly inflexible in a very similar way to the idiots that did precede him, although by virtue of his jumping off point not being quite as insanely dangerous, the belly flop is less painful. But what I mean is that any indicator going in the right direction, he says, proves his plan is working. And any indicator going in the wrong direction, he says, proves he must stick to his plan. I don't think that is a healthy way of running fiscal policy. You know, inflation has demonstrably proved stickier than anticipated. And you see that in the Bank of England's continual adjustment on monetary policy. But fiscal policy, no adjustment, no attempt to expand production, no attempt to hedge spending, to harness purchasing power of the state, nothing. I mean, arguably, these things do have small effects, but they are totally absent from the conversation. So it's basically a Hail Mary pa pass. They know that it's very difficult to turn around the economic situation in a meaningful way before the next general election, whenever that is. So what they hope is that by looking constant and looking boring and looking competent, uh, voters will forgive the actual effect being nothing. Hmm. And if there's a 25p off milk, they might notice that, possibly, if you're lucky. Which brings us to, Seth, you were at the National Conservative Conference, famously, as you told us on the podcast the other day. All conservative energy seems to be going into boats, woke and council culture. 
Yet the British Social Attitude Survey last year found, and I'm quoting here, the balance of public opinion in Britain has tipped in favour of, quote, woke attitudes on culture war issues, such as identity, immigration and equality. Are they backing the wrong horse and barking up the wrong tree here? I think part of this is how politicians and pollsters see um, changing public opinions very differently from how you or I might see them. Um, we might just be concerned with what's the most popular solution. They're looking at it in terms of who turns up to vote and where do we have a lead amongst those people. If you look at all the major issues, health, crime, um, you know, education, energy prices, all of these sorts of issues, the environment and so on, Labour has a lead of whether it's 2% or 20% on so many of these issues. Just about the only area where the Conservatives have a lead is actually around these sort of woke issues on on some of them. Uh, And so what they're trying to do is to fire up their base. Uh, It might not even be that they have an absolute lead amongst the total population, but they may have an absolute lead where they need to win. Mm. And so it's really desperation because they can't win the uh, argument on the economy. You know, one of the great fallacies of how we fight elections is that we're having an argument and having a national debate. Rubbish. What you're trying to do is change a topic. You know, you're changing the topic from something where people disagree with you to something where they all nod and think, oh, yes, they're absolutely right on that. And that's the sort of slate of hand that's being tried out in so many of these elections and the election run up and the preparation. Well, Hannah, as you were saying earlier, that survey about the opinions of millennials towards the Conservatives, the Conservatives are now being squeezed in two directions. Some two thirds of those millennials think that they deserve to lose the next election. But also in England's most rural constituencies, formerly the stronghold, you know, the uh, the, the blue hedge or whatever you want to call mm, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Labour's up 16 points to 35 percent. Jeremy Hunt himself could lose his seat. It's like you're blowing it at recruiting potential young voters and you're alienating who ought to be your absolute core Absolutely, voters. Yeah. And you've blown it on the economy. Yes. Now, you, <laughs> Hannah, left? are the, the leader of the Conservative Party. Go. Oh, what do you do? What a shocking thought. <laughs> uh, well, you've got to do something. You're really right to mention the rural constituencies because actually that those are the areas where the Tories do have the most broad spectrum support across age groups. You know, you meet mm. a lot of young people in rural economies working in agriculture, working in manufacturing and so on. They were traditionally quite Tory. Area where I grew up in South Oxfordshire, quite rural. A lot of my old schoolmates vote Tory and, you know, have done until now. And I, there's definitely this sense that they're losing that really core um, vote. And uh, what do you do about it? You start looking like you're talking to them again. Um, it, the whole COVID stuff has infected the perception of every policy that the Tories uh, are working on at the moment. So they've got to find a way to get beyond Boris. I, I really think people yeah. haven't forgotten that. So I don't have really have an answer because partly because I'm unmotivated to, to get <laughs> the Conservatives like, out of this whole They're failing possibly. in every department. Yeah, great. Excited <laughs> exactly. about that. Yeah, and all we Next need now question. Is, yeah, all we need now is the WhatsApp message card saying, I don't care about any of these people, signed yeah. Boris Johnson. Bring up the bodies or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. So we should talk about Labour for a bit. I feel like we've been ne- ne- neglecting Labour on this podcast for a bit. Rachel Reeves just unveiled her Securonomics plan last week on a tour uh, of the US. It's inspired by Bidenomics. The gist is a more proactive, internationally cooperative state. Fiscal responsibility sounds very old school. Alex, what did you think? I thought it was a really important speech and a really important policy, actually. Um, I think it has an audience. 
and the audience is not just domestic, the audience is international, what Rachel Reeves is saying is um, effectively she's suggesting the completely diametrically opposed um, attitude to what Sunak is showing. Sunak is opposed to having an industrial strategy. As weird as that sounds, he's actually opposed to it ideologically. He thinks that's picking winners and losers, which is nonsense, right? You don't have to pick individual companies. You can pick sectors. That is what the US and the EU are doing at the moment. And so what Rachel Reeves is saying is she's saying to an international audience, we're with you, that the world has changed because of a series of shocks and what we need to do, it, it's up to the state to keep the order. This is a really, really important. We're not talking about intervention. We're not talking about micromanaging. We're talking about rules, right? That it's up to the state to create a situation, for instance, where supply lines are secure, to have alternatives, to do proper risk assessments, and that liberal democracies coming together can do that. They can create that security for themselves and for each other. I think this is a hugely important and hugely positive message. Um, she's sort of suggesting a collective protectionism. And, and the further step, which is not articulating, but the, it's the germination for it is definitely there, is that she's saying, once we get our act together, we can also tax all these companies fairly because we are the markets into which they sell all their goods. So once we all have a network of cooperation between us and we agree on global rules so that the economy works and supply chains are not so um, uh, fragile, then we can actually begin to extract a rent from all these companies who are existing in our societies, selling into our societies, but paying nothing in return. So it's not an interventionist nanny state, it's a referee state, it's a VAR yeah, state. Absolutely. People hate VAR, they're wrong to hate it. <laughs> it's also really important, not just as a policy, but because of what it tells us about the values of an incoming government. Most governments are remembered, not because they said oh, we're going to introduce this policy and then they introduced the policy and then people liked it and they voted for their re-election. That's what we all like to think happens, but it's actually not how politics works. Usually, most ministers are on the back foot. They're making stuff up on the hoof. They're responding to crises. And the way they respond to those crises are informed by their prejudices, by their values, by their instincts. And this tells us that we're going to have a very different type of state and a very different approach of the state to what we've seen for the last 13 years. And yet, on top of that, I mean, the collapsing trust for the Tories on, on economics does not immediately translate into people trusting Labour. It's not a zero-sum game. Mm. You've no. got has Labour on 25% trusted on the economy and the Tories on 20%. It's like, they're so terrible and they're only 5% behind. You know, yeah. and making up that, 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 that difference is enormous. But look, you can, but you can never be trusted with the economy until your hand is on the tiller and voters and markets see how you behave. Or it's very easy to say you can't be trusted until yeah. you've got the hand on the tiller. In a first-past-the-post system, that doesn't matter. You just need to be distrusted less than the other side, actually, and a voter will make a, a rational bet. I think it's like what Hannah was saying earlier, just like, are people waiting for change? And we have 
I really feel we have passed the point of, I'm just so sick of those bastards. <laughs> That's yeah. it. But the stuff about the industrial strategy, I think, is really important because Sunak has resisted this. Um, but I think there are political reasons as well, sort of like deep values-based reasons. And the main reason we don't have social mobility in this country, if you ask any expert on social mobility and how it works, is because we no longer have an industrial strategy, which embeds it in and thinks about how people move, you know, find opportunity and move between opportunities. Um, so it's great to hear that we're actually talking about an industrial strategy, because although it sounds like technocratic language for some, it's, this is literally about whether or not someone born into a working class family, goes to a state school, can get the opportunity to financially better themselves during their life. And at the moment, we don't have political strategies in place to make that happen. There's a story today about uh, a deal uh, is done in France for a, for a gigafactory for electric uh, vehicle batteries to open there with, uh, you know, significant state subsidy, which we were told was impossible within the EU. And, I mean, we knew that was horseshit, but there you have it. Now, the the Gigafactory project in Britain going belly up two weeks ago, that's not a coincidence. You know, it's a race. If you don't want to be in it, then a lane just became free. Someone else will go in that lane and create that gigafactory. And and so all these things, all this wishy-washy attitude that, oh, we should let the free market just sort it out for themselves. Sure, you can let the free market sort it out for itself within a structure and a framework of rules and subsidies that you as the state provide, because that's how you can steer the economy and steer the country in a particular direction for the future. Otherwise, you're not doing anything, right? Otherwise, you're not the government. If you cannot alter the course of the country by half a degree to the south or the east, then what are you doing in there? What are you doing in number 10? You're not doing anything. The main show is a bit shorter than usual because Alex and Hannah will be sticking around for our succession finale cast, which will be with you very soon. And it's full of spoilers. I don't want to hear any whinging from any of you that it spoilt it. Uh, except, of course, when we tell you that Shiv was a scroll queen all along. In the meantime, let's have escape routes, the books, films, music or whatever that are providing an essential distraction from the political whirlwind. Hannah, what is your escape route? I'm reading Deborah Levy's The Cost of Living, which Uh is a memoir. Uh, It's basically about uh, earlier in Deborah's life, she escaped a suffocating marriage and it's about her transition to single life, motherhood as a solo mum and so on. Um, But it's really about sort of what we build of our lives. Her writing is spectacular. She writes such sparse and accurate prose. It really sort of spears people and characters and there's some amazing sort of nuggets in there my favourite that I've read so far is a little exchange between her and an older woman where this older woman is basically passing commentary on her own life through her criticism of others and it's just so perfect so if um, you know if that interests you I would highly recommend it Jolly good. Uh, Alex My garden um, the weather has been so lovely um, this last week um, well, it hasn't been lovely, but it's been perfect gardening weather, basically. You don't particularly want it to be 
too hot uh, and too sunny. Um, There are many drawbacks to having a a sort of patio garden in hundreds of containers of all shapes and sizes. But there is a huge benefit too. You can rearrange it. You can see how things have grown and developed and go, clearly this needs to be at the back or that needs a wall or this doesn't like this spot. It's finding it too sunny. And reimagine basically your entire paradise, which you can't do in a garden garden, as it were. And so I've been doing that and enjoying it immensely. And I have progress photos. Very, very nice. Oh, you're making me feel terrible because my garden is in such a state and I can't bring myself to deal with it. (laughs) Seth, how about you? How's your begonias? I've I've not even had time to look at outside my humble window box. (laughs) But I've been distracted, very distracted, by something which I'm not even going to get to see for another month because it's not out until the end of June. Um, but there have been plenty of spoiler-laden reviews of it, and that's the new Indiana Jones film. Oh, yeah. This is very personal to me because in 1989, when I was four years old, the first film I ever saw in a cinema on a big screen was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And it made me fall in love with cinema in such a big way and left such a big impact on me that going in 2008 to go and watch The Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls broke my heart. And I'd like to have that heart unbroken (laughs) by seeing it and it being not terrible. Did did, did the original film give you your love of oak-panelled rooms and strange old books and things like that? And and of punching Nazis, yes. Well, we all love that. (laughs) Um, My my escape routes are, I have two. One is the other important finale on television this week, Barry. The fantastic Barry on Sky, in which Bill Hader plays a hitman who is completely uh, uh, he's a a, a war veteran, a man of uh, he's an empty man with no direction in life. And he gets a job to kill someone um, in L.A. And the guy's at an acting class and Barry falls in love with acting. He gets the acting bug and follows his passion in a way that unfolds in the most tragic bleak manner possible it's hilariously funny it all came to a conclusion this week and uh, if you care about Barry Fuchs and Noho Hank and the fantastic spread of characters in this in this show obviously you would have seen it but to everyone else I say you just finished watching Succession watch Barry now it's fantastic you'll love it and the episodes are only half an hour long so you can really blast through them a, a big recommendation from me the other one is a very very weird thing I was uh, sent a link about one of those strange internet stories about uh, a camera that has turned up in the Philippines, a second-hand camera. It had some film in it. guy buys the second-hand camera, thinks, I'll develop the film and see what it is. Develops the film, and there's pictures which don't... They're clearly not in the Philippines. They're in England somewhere. So he puts it on Reddit and goes, does anybody recognise any of these people? There's people in a garden messing about with a tractor. It's my cousin, Johnny Baxter. (laughs) And and his son Lou and and his his mum's partner Les messing around in North Wales. Is your cousin the new Hunter Bison's laptop? <laughs> he is, he absolutely is. So basically, yeah. Wow. So this story, which I've been talking about on Reddit, this is this marvelous. They they trace the pictures Amazing. inside a day, and uh, Johnny's wife Sharon is on Reddit going, "That's my family. That's my family." Very strange. I'm looking forward to your long read in The Guardian on this. It's th- that's about as long as the read gets, actually. <laughs> it's, a, it's a short, long read, which I'm, sh- I'm sharing with you now. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you for joining me, Hannah Fern. Thank you. Seth Tabo. Thank you so much. And Alex Andreo. My pleasure. Don't forget, listeners, Podcasters Question Time with our own Nomi Smith on Zoom on Thursday, just for Patreon people. Find us on Patreon, sign up, and we'll see you there. And... Coming shortly into your queue, the Succession Finale cast. 
In the meantime, please be upstanding for Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and we'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters, Group Editor Andrew Harrison, with Seth Taboff, Alexandre Ayew, and Hannah Fern. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Thank you.